Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Joy to be with all of you. Let's, uh, let's open our time in prayer. Father, you have taught us uh, how dependent we must be on you. We naturally, in sin, are acting independent. But Jesus, you said, apart from you, uh, that we can do nothing. So we pray that you would send forth now uh, the blessed Holy Spirit. I pray that you would just set a guard over the door of my mouth, help me to say only those things that are helpful for building up my brothers and sisters in Christ, and enable all of us to think together um, about this magnificent topic of heaven uh, from the book of Revelation. So send your spirit, open our hearts and our minds now in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation. We'll be looking at at chapters 21 and 22. My desire today is to stoke the fires of your hope in our eternal future. It is a regular pattern of great emperors and kings of the earth to show off their glories and their achievements in their empires and in their capital cities. It's a regular pattern. Caesar Augustus said, I found Rome a city of bricks and left it a city of marble. And he put his name everywhere in that city, and there were great architectural achievements. He wanted visitors to Rome to be overawed with the power of the empire. See the same thing with Kublai Khan, the descendant of Genghis Khan. Marcus Polo, Marco Polo uh, described Xanadu, the center of his glorious empire. He wrote about this amazing city, and he described its massive size, its lavish glory, including a marble palace covered with gold, a natural park with a lush forest filled with exotic animals and birds, the main hall. Uh, where Kublai Khan would entertain his guests was so large that according to Marco Polo, it could have easily seated over 6,000. He wrote, its roof is vermilion, yellow, green, and blue. The tiles are fixed with a varnish so fine that they shine like crystal and can be seen from a great distance. Well, we actually see this same phenomenon many times in the Bible. We think about the Queen of Sheba visiting Solomon And when she saw the grandeur of his reign and the wisdom with which he arranged his court and all that, it said, literally, there was no breath left in her. Hezekiah sinfully showed off all of the contents of his armory and his treasury uh, to emissaries from Babylon after he had defeated, or God had defeated on his behalf, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians at that point would have been allies. Emissaries came, and there was nothing in all his kingdom that he did not show them. And this was all done out of arrogance. Nebuchadnezzar was walking in Daniel chapter 4 on the roof of his palace, and he looks out over his capital city, the capital city of Babylon, the center of the Babylonian Empire. And he said with great pride and arrogance, Is this not the great Babylon I have built? as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the display of the glory of my majesty. We see the same thing in Esther 1, where King Xerxes of the Persian Empire put on a magnificent display of the glories of his reign and his powerful achievements for 180 days, culminating in a week-long feast in the citadel of Susa, the center of his empire. So amazingly, 
In this sermon, I'm going to advocate that this, the very thing that these human emperors have done, for the most part sinfully, God is going to do on behalf of his own glory and his own majesty. He's going to put it on display, especially in the capital city of the New Jerusalem, and not for 180 days, but for all eternity. And what is wicked and sinful for arrogant human conquerors to do is completely appropriate for Almighty God to do that heaven is going to be a tour for all eternity in the glory of God. And we see this in Revelation 21 and 22. We see how the glory of God is the center, fe- central feature of the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, new earth. Look at verses 1 through 4 and then other parts of Revelation 21 and 22. Then I saw a new heaven, new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with people, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Skip down to verses 9 through 11. One of the seven angels came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. And again, Revelation 22, verse 5. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. So that is a a city translucent, in some sense glowing, radiant with the glory of God. No need for any other light source. And so we must ask, what is the glory of God? What does that mean? We see that term all the time. We think about it. What is it? As I've contemplated, I think this would be a good definition. The glory of God is the radiant display of the attributes of God. It's God's attributes put on display radiantly, shining. And so in heaven, there'll be a radiant display of the wisdom of God, a radiant display of the power of God, a radiant display of the love of God, a radiant display of the grace of God, and so on. All of the attributes of God will be radiantly or shining on display in the new Jerusalem and the new heaven, new earth. So this morning, briefly, we're going to meditate together on our heavenly life. And this meditation is commanded in Scripture in many places, but especially Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Listen to what Paul writes. Since then you have been raised with Christ, Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, 
and your life is now hidden with Christ and God, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So what Paul's telling us is that we should set our minds on things above and things to come. We should be thinking much about our heavenly future. Now, a number of years ago, uh, I read Randy Alcorn's book entitled Heaven, and it really just blew my mind. First of all, it was amazing how long it was, 500 pages. But what he did for me was he blew apart the image that had crept into my mind of a static heaven in which nothing ever changes. And he actually, at the beginning of the book, said that in his interviews with many people, he found many Christians surprisingly afraid of heaven, not looking forward to it, picturing themselves floating ethereally. Is that a word? Anyway, on a cloud strumming a harp forever. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less times to sing Amazing Grace than when we first begun. 10,000 years of singing the same song over and over. And Randy Alcorn said, we've got to blow that apart. We need a scriptural-based scriptural imagination. Now, I'm not going to put my stamp of approval on everything he came up with, but I think that's, that's right. We need to meditate on Scripture's teaching about heaven. And there's more there than you think there is. There's more there than I ever thought there was. And so we're going to do that a little bit uh, today. Now, as I've said, the heaven we're going to will be, will be radiant with the glory of God. It will be illuminated with the glory of God. We ourselves will glow. We will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father, Matthew 13, 43. So we will be glory, but we will also see glory. So we will, we will be radiant as a display of the glory of God. That's why we were created and recreated in Christ. As Isaiah 43 says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So we are going to, in heaven, be shining with the glory of God. We're going to be glory, but we're also going to see glory. We're gonna see the glory of God in each other and in the beauty of the place. Now, as I've meditated on it, I think if you could transport yourself in your mind by faith through the Spirit, as John was transported in a visionary sense, now you're there, you're in the new Jerusalem, I believe that the glory we experience will be of three sorts. God's past glories, God's present glories, and God's future glories. So, God's past glories is a backward look at what God did throughout redemptive history to assemble a multitude of the redeemed from every tribe, language, people, and nation, what he did to get us there, and other things besides. God's present glories will consist in the beauties of the place described for us in Revelation 21, 22, and what marvelous images there are there of the new Jerusalem and of new heaven and new earth, but especially of God himself to be able to see God in the face. As Revelation 22 says, his servants will see him. We will see his face. And that will be the greatest, the single greatest experience of the glory of God there could ever be. But it's not the only one. And then the future glory of God I can say very little about because the Bible says very little about. But we will do things in heaven. 
We will do interesting, exciting things. Why would God give you perfect capabilities, limitless strength of mind and heart and body, and nothing to do? And there are many biblical indications that that will not be happening. You'll have plenty to do. But I'm not going to talk about that, and I'm not going to talk about God's present glories in heaven. This message is going to be about the backward look. And so I just want to expand that for you and help you to understand what we will do. We will be looking backward at what God did. Now, one of the meditations that's helped me theologically has been to understand that the perfection of the redeemed in heaven does not mean we will be God ourselves. We will be like God, we'll be conformed to Christ, but we will not be God. What that means is there's certain attributes that God retains for himself, they will not be us. And that includes omniscience. We will never be omniscient. Now, a number of years ago, I heard a quote, I think originally ascribed to Adrian Rogers. I've heard it from others. And this is really kind of a cool statement. Listen to this. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Now, if you've never heard that before, it's like, wait, say that again? Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? That's all about God's omniscience. Nothing has ever popped in God's mind because then it wouldn't have been there a moment ago. God has never learned anything. So when you go to God and pray, and you pray about your sick friend or about your lost neighbor or something like that, you're not telling God anything he doesn't know. You're not educating God. He's educating you. All right, so what that means is if we're not omniscient, things will occur to us in heaven. Things will pop into our minds that weren't there before. We will learn things. Well, how long is that going to go on? Forever. Forever we'll be learning things. We'll be learning many things, but I'm going to zero in on history. We're going to learn history in heaven. There is no religion in the world so dependent on history as Christianity. Ours is a historical religion. The Bible is full of history. The Old Testament's full of history. And it's so clear, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, we have no Christianity. It doesn't exist. We are completely dependent on history being true. No religion in the world is so dependent on history. Now, histories are limited. Human histories are limited. Even the perfect record of history in the Bible is limited. John said that he didn't write everything about Jesus' life in the Gospel of John. In fact, if he had, the world couldn't contain all the books that would be written. No, but eternity has enough room. There's enough storage space to tell all the stories of Jesus' great works. So not everything was recorded in human history. Also, many peoples had no written history at all, just oral histories. And when enough generations have passed away, then the stories are gone, like dust in the wind. Human histories, the ones that are written down, are biased and twisted and slanted by the sinfulness of their authors and by the perspective that they bring to it. So they're imperfect. Also, humanity has systematically destroyed its own history. Think of the Vikings marauding up and down the coast and they come into some monastery and there's a bunch of gold and silver and they're interested and there's a bunch of scrolls and they're not. And they just burn them. And so a lot of stuff is just lost because of the destruction of artifacts. Also, history itself is extremely complex. Second Peter 3 says, with the Lord, a single day is like a thousand years. Think about that. That's incredible. 
You could write a 10-volume set on a single day of history, November 23rd, 1920. No one would read it, but you could write it because we're talking about hundreds of millions of people and nations all over the world. One single day more happens than you can possibly imagine. And especially, and this is important for my, my point here, most of our brothers and sisters throughout redemptive history have not had the privileges you and I have had of sitting in a seminary and cracking open books and receiving an academic uh, education in history. They are godly brothers and sisters who are converted by the genuine gospel, who lived simple lives, who minded their own business, worked hard with their own hands, raised their families, and died and went to heaven. And the overwhelming majority of God's people and God's works they knew nothing about. And I'm just telling you, God will not be robbed of his glory by the overwhelming majority of his people knowing nothing about the overwhelming majority of his works. And so we're going to learn. Now, in heaven, you're going to get a great upgrade. So you're like, you know, I actually am not a big fan of history. I know you're into it. But, you know, genealogies, you know, timelines, all of that. Well, first of all, let me, let me tell you, you're going to get an upgrade. You're going to be a better person in heaven. <laughs> and I will too. And so what that means is we'll have perfect minds. And the perfect minds mean we'll be able to track, to concentrate. We will not get bored. We will not have ADD. We will not have smartphones. That's a whole other topic. All right? We will be able to track and follow and synthesize and remember. Not only that, we will have redeemed hearts. We will perfectly love what God loves and hate what God hates. And in proportion, some things are more amiable and attractive, as Jonathan Edwards said, and others less. And so everything will, will find its place in proportion in heaven. You'll get it, and you'll love it. And we'll have perfect bodies. You won't get weary. You won't get tired. Jesus never got bored. It's part of our sinful nature to get bored. We will not. If something's interesting to God, it'll be interesting to you and me. And furthermore, we will be able to handle the full revelation of God's glory. Remember how Moses said to God, show me your glory, and God said to Moses, no man can see me and live. No man can see me and live. So he put him in the cleft of the rock and covered him up, and he just showed him the trailing portions of his glory. That's what we get here on earth. We're seeing through a glass darkly. We get just a little trailing portions of the glory of God. In heaven, you'll be able, as it were, to stare at the sun and not go blind. You will have an infinite upgrade, and the thing that you could not experience now, as it says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, you will have an upgrade and be able to stare right at the sun and not go blind. And so you're going to see it, and you're going to stare. Now, what I'm arguing for here or actually arguing against, is what I would call heavenly amnesia. Heavenly amnesia. A number of years ago, I uh, got rid of or sold a, uh, an Apple device. And before I did it, I thought it best to wipe it clean of any of m me, of my financial records, my passwords, all of that. I think that's a just a good thing to do. And they'll teach you how to do that. Well, some people, I think they uh, practically think that's what's going to happen to us in heaven. A complete memory wipe or at least maybe a partial memory wipe. We'll remember some things, but not others, right? Now, you may think, well, who thinks that? Well, a very, very, very well-known pastor and exegete who's frequently on the radio, who if I said his name, you would know 
who I'm talking about, but I won't say his name, was doing one of these pastor Q&A things and was asked this question, relevant to the book I'm writing, so I thought, I'd like his answer. Will earthly memories exist in heaven? Here's the answer from this godly man, excellent exegete. Nobody in heaven knows anything going on on earth. Nobody in heaven cares about anything going on on earth. Heaven is completely detached. There's a massive gulf, another dimension, another realm. It is sheer bliss, absolute peace, perfect contentment, perfect tranquility, unbounded joy, end quote. Well, I would ask this brother pastor, then what was the point of all of this? Is it really Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, dust in the wind, means nothing? Is it really true that our labor in the Lord is in vain? It cannot be. Furthermore, it's not biblical. It seems like Revelation. They're tracking very carefully what's happening on earth. So I was like, well, I gotta think about this. And I understand why he said it. He actually explains it. Because Revelation 21.4 says there'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. And he can't imagine how we could remember our sins, our sufferings, and the damned people we loved on earth, but they're eternally in hell, and we know that, and, and, and not be filled with sorrow and grief. Well, I don't deny that it's hard to harmonize, but I think the lobotomy or the memory wipe is worse. I believe that we will in heaven have an accurate knowledge of all three of those, our sins, our sufferings, and the damned, and we'll see all of them the way God does. And we will have zero shame, no mourning, no crying. Those days are done. And we'll have consummated the Romans 7 statement that Paul made, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. I'm not that person anymore. I'm different. But the record needs to be told so that we can understand. Now, you would say, all right, pastor, do you have scriptural evidence? I do. How much time do you have? Um, Not much. I have at least 16 biblical proofs that we'll remember in heaven our earthly lives. I've culled out my favorites. So let me just give you some of them, all right? How do I know biblically, scripturally, that we will remember in heaven our earthly lives? Let's start with Jesus' words and actions, all right? Jesus' words and actions. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So how many of Jesus' words will we know in heaven? All of them. Does that include his statement to Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times? Will you remember that? Yes. Okay. How about Jesus' action, the central action, his death under the wrath of God on the cross? Will you remember that? No doubt about it. For it says in Revelation 5:12, in a loud voice they sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, strength and honor and glory and praise. We're gonna be praising the lion of the tribe of Judah who looked like a lamb who was slain with his nail prints and evidence of his death. Yes. Or what about Jesus' statement in Matthew 8:11? Many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. All right, imagine that, and you sit down at the feast with Abraham, but you've both had that memory wipe. Hi, I'm Joe. Hi, I'm Abraham. Let's eat. There's nothing to talk about. Who are you? You're nobody. It's like one of those robot movies where we're all like cranked out from a machine and we all look the same height and the same glow and, and we all sit and eat. Next, to, It doesn't make a difference to eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they're nobody different than you. 
He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Abraham's in heaven. What about the fact that God wants to put his grace on display for all eternity? He says he will in Ephesians 2, 6, and 7. It says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that, listen, in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So that means forever we'll be celebrating grace. Grace always has to do with sin. God didn't show grace to angels. He showed grace to the sinners who needed it. And so we will be celebrating the amazing grace shown to John Newton, who was a wretched slave trader but was transformed by the gospel. We'll be celebrating the, the amazing grace shown to Saul of Tarsus, who began the day breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples and ended it praising Jesus. We're going to celebrate his grace, God's grace, in the coming ages. But no mourning, crying, or pain. Just knowledge. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Or what about the doctrine of rewards? We are told about rewards many times. Jesus wants us to store up treasure in heaven. What are we storing up? Good works. We're storing up rewards. What are rewards? Well, they're like the Congressional Medal of Honor. They mean nothing apart from the, the narrative, the story of what the soldier did on the battlefield. Imagine if you saw somebody wearing a Congressional Medal of Honor and you find out that they bought it at a pawn shop. It means nothing. Or an Olympic medal, it means nothing without the achievement. The reward is tied to the story. And friends, if there's no story, there's no glory. And so Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. You, uh, against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the prophets will be honored as persecuted people and you will be honored as persecuted people if you have been persecuted for the name of Christ. Or he says in Matthew 10 that if you give even a cup of cold water to one of his disciples who's on mission for God, you will never lose your reward. Well, what would it mean except that it's tied in some way to the cup of cold water? Why did you get there? I gave a cup of cold water. Or again, in Luke 14, he said, when you give a banquet, to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be, listen to this, repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Repaid. Now, that's all by grace. We don't deserve anything. But why, dear brother or dear sister, are you being treated like this? Well, I gave a banquet for the poor, the needy, and the crippled. And they couldn't repay me, and now God is repaying me. You see, the story is everything. And so rewards have to be tied to what happened. Also, consider the consistent pattern in the book of Psalms of praising God for his mighty works. This is not one or two times. This is over and over and over and over and over in the Psalms. For example, the last Psalm, Psalm 150, verse 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Where do you think that is? Praise him in his mighty heavens. Oh, now we know. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Now, those are two great topics for why we'll praise God in heaven. His excellent greatness and his mighty deeds. Friends, that's the backward look I'm talking about. What are his mighty deeds? How many are the count of them? We'd weigh them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Or again, Psalm 111, 1 through 4. This is my favorite one. Listen to this. Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart, listen, in the counsel of the upright and in the assembly. 
That's heaven, friends, ultimately. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. That's what I'm talking about. That's heaven. Studying the great works of God and delighting in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. There it is, friends. I mean, in one place, that's the evidence that I'm looking for. We'll spend eternity remembering the great works of God and and celebrating them. Or what about this one? One of my favorite verses, and I'm certain here at Southeastern, one of yours as well, is Revelation 7 and 9 and 10. As a trustee of the IMB, our president, Paul Chitwood, said, this is our vision. You don't need a vision. We already have it. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They, are wearing, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, this word go right here, this is all about the Great Commission. We want to see those people brought together. But read a few verses later. A few verses later. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? Stop right there. Wow. How long do you have? How much time do you have to answer that question? Every brother, every sister from every nation has a story to tell. And to spend eternity learning their stories and to think you'll be delivered, so delivered from yourself that you'll actually care what their stories are. And you'll want to see God's glory in every one of those stories. How awesome will that be? What about the woman, Mary, who anointed Jesus, remember, lavishly, poured out a year's worth of wages on his feet? And the disciples, especially Judas, were incensed. Remember what Jesus said? I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached, throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Until we get to heaven, and we'll forget about it entirely. It doesn't make any sense. By the way, those are some of the words of Jesus we'll be remembering for all eternity. So we'll remember her for all eternity too, but not just her. All the other lavish acts of love and service given to Jesus will be remembered as well. And in heaven, we'll get to give God the glory for all of the good works done by his servants. Everyone who hates the truth does not come into the light for fear that that his deeds will be revealed. But everyone who lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he did has been done through God. So, we're going to learn what it really means, as I prayed, apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us, Isaiah said. We're going to learn how all of the good works that the saints are wearing, Revelation 19, the white robes are the righteous acts of the saints, how God did them all. That's why the 24 elders do what? Cast their crowns before God. But they're theirs to cast. They get to say, what I did, you did in me and through me. So, who are we going to get to know in heaven? Everybody. Not just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but everybody. And you may say, well, I'm really looking forward to meeting so-and-so. I'm like, that's fine, that's fine. But you're going to be just as excited to meet some people you've never heard of before, because that's most of them, the overwhelming majority. And we're going to see the glow of the place and the glory of the place. It's radiant and shining with the living stones. Peter calls us living stones. And you remember how it says in Revelation 21, 19, and 20, the foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. So you've got jasper, which is clear, 
You get sapphire, which is red. Chalcedony is greenish blue. Emerald is green. Sardonyx is reddish white. Carnelian is red. Chrysolite is gold. Beryl is blue green. Topaz is yellow. Chrysoprase, greenish yellow. Jacinth is purple. And amethyst is violet. Every color of the rainbow is there. And so if we are the living stones, there's just a different way that God will shine or glow through you. And you're going to be able to enjoy the light from each of your brothers and sisters, that multitude greater than anyone could count for all eternity. So you get to meet the greatest heroes of church history, Polycarp the martyr, Perpetua and Felicitas who gave their lives in the Roman persecution. You'll, you'll get to meet Augustine, the great systematizer and theologian. You get to meet Chrysostom, the great preacher, Athanasius who stood against the world for Orthodox Christology. You'll get to meet Martin Luther who stood against the Roman Catholic medieval Roman Catholic Church on justification by faith. You get to meet John Calvin, who systematized Protestant doctrine and theology. You get to meet John Bunyan, who wrote from a prison cell, Pilgrim's Progress. You get to meet Jonathan Edwards, who with George Whitfield was instrumental in the Great Awakening through their preaching and their writing. Susanna Wesley, who raised John and Charles Wesley as a godly woman. You get to, to meet William Carey, the first Protestant missionary to India. You get to see all that God did in and through his life. Adoniram and Nancy Judson, first American missionaries, went and led thousands of Burmese to Christ. Get to meet each one of them. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher. What a fun time it'll be with him. I hope he retains a lot of that same personality. I mean, if there's anybody from church history I want an evening with, Martin Luther and Charles Spurgeon, fun times. All right? Jonathan Edwards and John Calvin, not so much. Very intelligent. But I'm picturing Jonathan Edwards going off early in the evening, closing his door and praying and going to bed. Um, but we'll meet them, all of them. William Wilberforce, who stood against chattel slavery. Mary Slessor, the missionary. Fanny Crosby, the hymn writer. D.L. Moody, the, the uh, evangelist. Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, missionaries to the Amazonian Huarani people. All the great luminaries, the famous people. But even more cool is all the people you've never heard of. Never heard of them. Like those genealogies in First Chronicles, who are these people? You have a study Bible, and you got all these cross-references. Not there, not in First Chronicles, whatever. The sons of Dan, I don't know. The sons of, sons of Naphtali, what? Why are they there? It's because God cares about obscure people. Because most of us are obscure people. The overwhelming majority of his people are obscure people. No one wrote about their lives. Think about the widow that put in two copper coins and Jesus said she put in more than anybody. You know how many of those kind of people we're going to meet in heaven who put in more than anybody? And we don't even know who they are. We're going to meet all of these people. What mysteries? I think about the coronavirus right now. What about during the Black Death in the 14th century? I'll bet there was a woman that cared for sick people in her community who washed nasty clothes and bound up sores and cared for people till she caught the bubonic plague and died herself. You don't know her name, but you're going to meet her. Recently, I read the account of a Japanese pilot who led the first wave of the attack at Pearl Harbor. I was a missionary for two years in Japan, and Japanese Christian men are very rare. This man's name was Mitsuo Fuchida. Against all odds, as a Japanese pilot, he survived World War II. Think about the kamikazes and all that. After the war, he bumped into his former flight engineer, Kazuo Kanagasaki. He was amazed that he was still alive. He thought he had died at the Battle of Midway, but he actually had been captured and was incarcerated in an American POW camp. 
But as they talked, he was surprised to find out that the Americans had treated him well. There was no torture. As a matter of fact, there was a woman there, a woman named Peggy Covell, who just out of Christian compassion loved and cared for the Japanese prisoners in such a way that was astonishing to this man, Count Agasaka, because she had lost her missionary parents to Japanese troops in the Philippines. They'd killed her parents. And she repaid that with kindness and love because Christ told us to love our enemies. Well, Mitsuo Fuchida had never heard anything like this. He said any Japanese woman or man, if their parents were killed, it would be their life mission to track those people down in vengeance and kill them. But here's a woman who was basically washing the feet of her enemies. Well, in the fall of 1948, Fuchida was walking by a train station in the Shibuya district of Tokyo. Someone handed him a pamphlet about the life of Jacob DeShazer, an American pilot who had flown the Doolittle Raid, the first American answer to Pearl Harbor, and had been shot down, was in a Japanese POW camp, and was tortured and abused. But that experience eventually led him to faith in Christ, and he wrote about it in this pamphlet. So here's this Fuchida, this pilot, reading about this. Like, it's incredible. I've got to find out about Christianity. He went and got a Bible, and just by reading the Bible, came to faith in Christ. He then became a Japanese evangelist in Japan and in America and wrote a book about his story from Pearl Harbor to Calvary. Now, in the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, Mitsuo Fuchida will share fellowship with Peggy Covell, with Peggy Covell's parents, who are missionaries, and even with American Christian servicemen who went down on the USS Arizona, sitting at the same table in fellowship and amazed at the grace of God. Now, I've been most of my Christian life, and I've never heard about this man, Fuchida. How many stories like that are there that we're going to learn in heaven? Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the brief time we've had. There's so much more we could say. I thank you that we're going to be delivered from selfishness. We're going to be able to celebrate other people's honors, people who suffered more than we did, people who sacrificed more than we did, people who have greater glory than we will have in heaven, and we won't be jealous at all. We know that when one part of the body is honored, the whole body will be honored with it. Help us to be filled with hope. This room is filled with people who... If you allow us to live, we'll do great works that you have prepared in advance that they should walk in them. Help them to do them for your glory. Help them to be willing to lead lost people to faith in Christ, to go and share the gospel so that heaven can be populated by people who will shine with the glory of God for all eternity. We pray for his glory and in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.